Informing America's farmers and ranchers. It's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thank you so much for joining us and letting us be part of your day. We appreciate it and hope you're having a good day. Here's what we're going to be talking about. Jeff Cooper, president and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association, will join us to make the ethanol industry's case for being included in this next round of COVID assistance that the Senate is working on and whether or not he thinks they will be included in it or not. We're going to talk with Blake Thompson with Feeding America, the chief supply chain officer for Feeding America, about the challenges of um, COVID-19 on feeding programs, uh, the extra burden that's put on uh, trying to get food out to uh, these people that are in great need right now. The demand has increased during the, the uh, pandemic, and we'll talk about ways that uh, you can donate and ways that some people are already donating to help feed those in need. So we're going to be talking with Feeding America a little bit later in the program. And Mark Dopp with the uh, North American Meat Institute will join us. He'll have some reaction to what we have heard so far from USDA on their investigation into uh, cattle markets. We have uh, kind of a a partial response so far, perhaps more yet to come, but we'll talk about that a little bit later on. Well, joining us now to start things off, though, is Danielle Beck. She's the Executive Director of Government Affairs for the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. Danielle, good to talk with you again. I want to know a little bit more, thank you, about NCBA's uh, uh, campaign that you've launched now to get people to comment on the federal dietary guidelines and what beef's role should be in those guidelines. Tell us about this campaign. So NCBA's top priority since day one has has been to protect the scientific credibility of the dietary guidelines. They are the cornerstone for all federal nutrition policies. And so recognizing beef's role in a healthy diet is really critically important. And so, you know, engaging from day one with the Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee, their process just wrapped up, and we are now in the final stretch of this process. USDA and HHS will be working together. They're taking public comment and input on the scientific report from the DGAC. And so right now is really the critical time for producers to engage because while it was a far, a drastic improvement from the 2015 process, we think there's a little bit more room for growth. And so, you know, having our producers weigh in, we think we can get there through that. What are your concerns? You know, the DGAC maintained some outdated recommendations. For example, the cap on saturated fat intake is one of them. Uh, the science on saturated fat has continued to evolve, and most leading health authorities around the globe have dropped dietary cholesterol restrictions because it can lead to consumers unjustifiably limiting their intake of import- important nutrient-rich foods like beef. Um, we also think it'd be helpful to see clearer language around lean meat. In 2015, and same as in 2020, the report recognizes healthy diet dietary patterns are plentiful in things like whole fruits and veggies and include lean meat. They then say that healthy diets are lower in red and processed meat. This language is really confusing for the average consumer, though, and completely overlooks the fact that the majority of beef sold in the grocery store today qualifies as lean meat under the current dietary guidelines. So I think we'd like to see some small tweaks very minor improvements, uh, but all in all, you know, I think that beef producers can feel good about this process. 
Talking with Daniel, back with the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. Daniel, I'm sure there are people say, what difference does it make what these dietary guidelines say? I'm going to eat what I want to eat anyway. I'm not going to be influenced by them. What's the big deal? Uh, could you explain for us what is the big deal? Why are these important? I mean, whether you realize it or not, the dietary guidelines impacts, I think, every facet of the American consumer's life when it comes to the food that they eat. Uh, every school nutrition program, uh, women, and inf- women, infants, and children, WIC, uh, SNAP, uh, all the nutrition assistance programs, what we feed our service members, uh, all of these things are influenced by what is included in the dietary guidelines. And so whether or not beef is on the plate and part of those meals is really going to come down to how how they fall on on beef and a healthy diet. All right. So what kind of comments are you looking for? You just want people to write in and say, we want more beef or in in the guidelines or, or do you want something more specific? What are you looking for here? Yeah, I mean, I think the most practical approach for us is to focus on securing flexible guidelines that encourage the public to get down to the basic first, or basics first, like eating more vegetables and other nutrient-rich foods, including lean meats and beef, and less empty calories. But we've made it really easy for our producers to engage and weigh in with the public, and that's by going to our website. It's policy.ncba.org. Right on that front page, all you have to do is click on the link that says Submit Comments Now, uh, and it'll take you to a portal, and we have drafted up comments for our producers to utilize. They can tailor it to make it their own, uh, but we sort of hit the the key concerns and then also some of the key items we like because I think, you know, we're, we're giving a compliment sandwich, I guess, to the Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee uh, and USDA and HHS as they work together to finalize the 2020 guidelines. How important is it to have strong public support for this or comments submitted? I think it's critically important. If you look at the comment portal right now, you know, in the first week, there were just over 1,300 comments submitted, and a lot of those comments were driven by the activist community. Uh, They're focused on dairy intake right now, but we know that more will be coming, probably anti-meat activists. Uh, Having a balance there is really, really important. You know, we worked really hard to ensure that the, the 2020 advisory committee makeup would be balanced. Uh, And that was actually the case this year. We saw a much fairer, much more transparent process than we did in 2015. Uh, Now is not the time for us to let up pressure. Uh, We have to see this through until the the game has ended, and that really won't be until the final dietary guidelines are published. But between now and when the comment period closes on August 13th, uh, we're calling on our producers to weigh in. Why is there such a comment period? I mean, if they're going just by the science, uh, why would the committee be swayed by public comment? Well, so it's not just based on the science. It's also a public input. And so it's USDA and HHS. They're looking at what the committee report and the science says. But they also take into consideration what makes sense for the average consumer. Is this something that's practical, that's affordable, that can be adopted and maintained in every single household? You know, it's completely impractical to recommend a a really strict diet for somebody who doesn't have access to, you know, fresh fresh fruits and veggies all the time or might not be able to afford it uh, or who doesn't know how to cook 
X, Y, and Z product. Uh, there needs to be some flexibility. There needs to be clear communication. And so, you know, USDA and HHS, as they work to finalize the dietary guidelines for Americans, they're calling on average consumers, uh, average producers, you name it, to weigh in. And they'll be really taking in, I think, into consideration the totality of comments received in addition to this scientific mm -hmm. report. And again, where do the people go to make, get their comments made? It is policy.ncba.org, and just click on that link that says comment here. Very good. Danielle, thank you very much. Thank you. Take care. Danielle Beck, Executive Director of Government Affairs for the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. Up next, Jeff Cooper, President and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association, makes the case for the ethanol industry to get assistance in this next package of aid because of coronavirus that the Senate's working on. We'll hear from Jeff Cooper next on AOA. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Senate Republicans getting ready to unveil a $1 trillion coronavirus relief package and... That could include as much as $20 billion in additional funding for USDA to help farmers dealing with pandemic-related losses. But will there be anything in there for the ethanol industry? Joining us now is Jeff Cooper, President and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association. Well, what do you think, Jeff? What are you hearing? Is there going to be some help for you this time or not? Well, Mike, we certainly hope so, and we've been in constant contact with uh, Senate staff the last few days and the last 24 hours. Uh, we remain optimistic that there will be something for renewable fuel producers specifically inserted into this package. Uh, obviously, you know, the, the HEROES Act that the House passed a few months ago included a renewable fuel uh, reimbursement provision that would pay uh, ethanol producers 45 cents a gallon for, for all of their production from the beginning of the year uh, through the end of April. Uh, we also had Senator Grassley and Senator Klobuchar introduce a standalone bill in late May that would essentially do the same thing, but really um, kind of shift the focus to the feedstock and would reimburse producers for their feedstock costs. Uh, so we're hopeful that, that one of those provisions uh, or, or some variation uh, ends up in this final bill coming out of the Senate, and, and then the negotiation will begin between the House and Senate. We do think there's been, you know, strong support in both chambers and from both sides of the aisle to include something specific for renewable fuels. We're, we're concerned that, uh, you know, the, the $20 billion for USDA is, is great, uh, but USDA has pretty, been pretty clear to us that, uh, you know, if they don't get specific direction from Congress to help the ethanol industry, they're not likely to do that. Jeff, make your case for our listeners as you would to members of Congress on why assistance is needed for the ethanol industry and how much assistance is needed. Well, Mike, I mean, you know, the case to be made is that uh, there are very few sectors of, of the, the U.S. economy, especially when we think about energy and, and agriculture, that were hit as hard as the ethanol industry during the COVID-19 uh, downturn. We, we have seen some facilities come back online. We've seen some rebound in, in fuel demand. Uh, but honestly, we're, we've sort of, you know, we're stalling out on that recovery and, and sort of uh, uh, sputtering a bit, if you will. We had some, some nice 
you know, recovery and demand between late April and mid-June, but we've sort of hit a hit a wall and things have uh, flattened out ever since then. Um, ethanol producers are still kind of hanging by a thread in terms of of profitability. Um, you know, those those companies that were able to use the Paycheck Protection Program uh, were able to, to to keep their staff uh, around the plant and, and keep them uh, employed, but you know, bottom line is a lot of those things are running out, a lot of that aid from the CARES Act. Um, and, you know, things are just not great in the industry. Uh, there's a real need uh, for some additional resources and, and a cash infusion to help this industry, uh, you know, continue taking part in this recovery. We're talking with Jeff Cooper, president and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association. Jeff, uh, I believe there's a strong case to be made here that although the pandemic no one could have seen that coming and, and what we're dealing with uh, was so unexpected. But had EPA not been granting those small refinery right. exemptions and undermining the RFS and, and costing the industry all those gallons of demand, that even though the pandemic still would have obviously hurt the industry, you would not be in this dire of a situation had those SREs not been granted. Well, that's that's absolutely right, Mike. We were already uh, experiencing economic harm in the ethanol industry well before COVID-19 hit, and that was all due to EPA's utter failure to properly enforce the renewable fuel standard. And a large part of that was all of these exemptions that they were granting to small refineries, letting them out of their obligations to blend renewable fuels. Uh, so we already were seeing demand destruction and, and softness uh, in the marketplace prior to COVID-19, uh, then along comes the pandemic and hits us with another 50% reduction in demand in a very short time, uh, and it was absolutely crippling for the industry. Um, we do, you know, still have uh, dozens of facilities that that are shut down or certainly not operating anywhere close to normal rates. Um, so, you know, that that is another part of this story that uh, we need to keep reminding folks in the Senate as they consider this. And we're still waiting on what they're going to do with these uh, retroactive requests uh, because more of them, I guess, are popping up now, right? Yeah, uh, EPA continues to receive these so-called gap year waiver requests from small refineries. Some of them go all the way back to 2011. Uh, And again, the reason they're submitting these requests for previous years is so that they can then argue, well, we've, you know, EPA gave us an exemption each and every year, and therefore we meet the criteria or the requirements of the Tenth Circuit decision that came out in in January. Uh, and so, you know, they would argue, well, we we're, because of that, we remain eligible for more exemptions moving forward. Uh, so the whole thing is is completely bizarre. Uh, but the refiners, you know, they're good at at finding these little loopholes and and jamming their foot through them, uh, and that's what they're trying to do here. So we continue to push EPA to reject out of hand these waiver requests, these gap year requests. Uh, and again, we're also working with our, our friends in Congress, both in the House and Senate, uh, to help put some pressure on the administration there as well. All right, back to the request for assistance in this package. If mm-hmm. the ethanol industry is left out again this time, what does that mean how dire is the situation for the industry as far as what it will look like moving forward? 
Well, Mike, you know, honestly, I, I think we, we have a number of producers that are sort of hanging by a, a thread uh, today and, and are, are barely able to, to keep their doors open in hopes that there will be some, some help coming and some rescue aid coming. Um, if we don't see some form of, of assistance or support for the industry, uh, we're very concerned, especially if there's another round of, of shutdowns or even if there isn't. I mean, like I said, we're, we're seeing less driving in the last few weeks um, as as COVID cases are picking up in states across the country, there are just people who are voluntarily staying home, um, even though they're not being ordered to do so. So we're worried that the combination of of another, you know, another round of 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 uh, you know COVID shutdowns or closures or travel restrictions, on top of not receiving any any assistance, could be you know just completely devastating for the industry. Uh, you know, Mike. The other thing I would say is. The and Senator Grassley has made this point repeatedly. It's also a matter of fairness. I mean, if you look at what the administration has done to help the oil and gas industry recover from this pandemic, uh, they've done everything they possibly can. Uh, you know, they've they've taken oil off the market and put it in the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. They they you know Federal Reserve has this bond buyback program. Um, you know, they've got the Main Street Lending Program where they completely rewrote the rules to accommodate the fossil energy companies. So we're just asking for a little bit of equity and fairness to make sure that we can continue to compete. Can you show, Jeff, because there are those who point out that COVID assistance, you should be able to make a direct link to the to the pandemic. And because we know there have been attempts to give funding to uh, other things, other other mm-hmm. entities, other causes that were that are showing economic hardship, but was not from the pandemic that may have existed before yeah. the pandemic or whatever. So can you show directly the, uh, the impact of COVID causing these losses in your industry? Oh, we, we absolutely can, Mike. It's, it's actually something very easy to demonstrate. Um, all you have to do is go look at the DOE data, uh, you know, weekly ethanol production and, and, and ethanol demand data, uh, and you see things we're we're tracking along okay until about you know late February, early March, and then you just see this enormous collapse in in both uh, demand and then you know the collapse in production followed shortly thereafter. Uh, so you know our analysis using that government data shows that we produced 1.3 billion gallons of ethanol less than we were originally expected to uh, before COVID hit. So. Uh, when you're reducing production by that amount, you're buying a lot less corn. Um, you're, you're, you know, foregoing a lot of sales revenue. Uh, you're not producing distillers' grains. I mean, there's all sorts of related impacts when these facilities shut down and, and we see such a huge dip in production. So we, we absolutely can demonstrate that, and it was unquestionably uh, tied to COVID-19. People weren't driving. Uh, they weren't buying fuel, and so they weren't consuming ethanol critical time for the industry and it's a critical decision coming up uh, in congress on this assistance package jeff we'll stay in touch and see what they come up with and get your reaction response when we find out thank you very much will do thanks mike jeff cooper president and ceo of the renewable fuels association up next we'll talk with an official with feeding america the challenge of helping people through this pandemic stay with us you're listening to aoa
Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. Well, there's always a challenge in trying to uh, help feed the food insecure. But if when you add a pandemic like COVID-19 into the mix, well, then it's, it's increasingly difficult because that demand is even greater. And that's why donations and anything you can do to help really makes a difference. Joining us now is the Chief Supply Chain Officer for Feeding America, Blake Thompson. Blake, thank you for joining us. Kind of give us an overview, if you will, of how much of an increase you're seeing in in the need and the demand for food because of COVID-19. Hey, Mike. Thanks for inviting me onto the program. Let me give you a little background on Feeding America uh, first. It's a you know it's a nationwide network of about 200 food banks, and we have about 60,000 partner agencies, and we serve every county in the United States. You know, with COVID, um, we have seen about a, a little over a 40% increase in uh, uh, people in need for uh, food support, and we estimate there's about 54 million people, including one in four children, could face hunger as a result of the pandemic. So the increase wow. has been could, very significant. Could you give us that number again? 54, 54 million mil- people, million, including wow. one in four children, could face hunger as a result of the pandemic. So we've seen about a, about a 40%, a little over 40% increase, we believe, in people in need for, for the charitable food system. And we have seen on the news, you know, long lines at uh, some feeding facilities of places where they can get some, uh, get the food. But uh, I would imagine this is really putting a, quite a burden on supplies, right? Trying to get it. It was a challenge anyway to get enough, but now this makes it even tougher. You know, it does. There's there's two effects that we've seen a, a, a decrease in some of the food donations. Um, we've seen an increase in government food. The, the, the recent CFAP program has, has kicked in and provided some additional food. So increase, you know, we, we've seen the increase in demand, uh, some decline in food donations. And, and Mike, for the most part, it's really disrupted our ability to, to distribute so, uh, food assistance. Um, our operating model uh, has been disrupted. So because we've had to be in operation with low and no touch because we've had an impact on our volunteer base, which are primarily made up of senior citizens for the most part, both agencies and food banks. We've been very challenged to become innovative about how we not only source more food, but how we're distributing it to those in need. So we've, you know, you've probably seen on TV, the mass distributions, the, um, the, the car drive-throughs have been very uh, successful for us because it helps us maintain that, that protection for uh, people coming to get food and also the volunteers and employees that are distributing the food uh, with social distancing. So there's some of that, um, you know, we've, we've had, uh, we've had to curtail some of our, or change some of the operations inside of our food banks to be able to provide safety for volunteers that are still available as well as workers in those food banks for social distancing and, and, uh, uh, keep them safe from COVID as well. So it's been a it's been a tremendous challenge. And I you know a call out to our food bank members have done an outstanding job, and are super resilient in terms of the, in, in terms of the face of of all they've had to uh, 
contend with uh, with uh, with a with a pandemic situation. So yeah, those, it's been very those, those volunteer those volunteer workers do such a tremendous job all the time. And then you know, I think a lot of us probably hadn't thought that much about it. We thought you know, we think about just the food aspect. That obviously that's very important, but how this has impacted your workers, your volunteers, and keeping them safe, and whether or not uh, they can come out and help uh, get the food out. I mean, that that is such a big part of this. Um, has that gotten better? Have you seen people coming back? Uh, have you have they adjusted to the uh, precautions that have to be taken? Uh, kind of bring us up to date on that. So that's been 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 fairly stable. There's still high levels of precaution, you know, face masks and we, we, we've had to increase the, you know, the sanitation levels, um, sanitizing frequency inside food banks and agencies uh, to be able to ensure a, you know, safe work environment. And, you know, it continues. We're, you know, we're seeing some resurgence of the virus in parts of the U.S. And, uh, um, you know, we're, we're in a more, this is, we, we call it the new normal, Mike. Um, and uh, we've we've had to adjust, and we're in different operation mode right now. But we're most food banks are contending with it decently. There is, you know, we we also support disaster recovery with natural disasters, et cetera. And one of the issues you get in with that potentially is fatigue, prolonged response time, and all that. So there's a real challenge for our food banks to uh, guard against. You know, fatigue for for volunteers and employees is this thing is probably going to be protracted and extended as well. We're talking with Blake Thompson, Chief Supply Chain Officer for Feeding America. So, Blake, what's your biggest need? And people listening that want to help, what's the best way they can help? So, biggest need would be donations, volunteer time at our local food banks. And I would ask all your listeners to, to visit feedingamerica.org and learn more about our organization uh, and some of the initiatives we have going on in COVID response. And we encourage people to do that. There's so many ways they can, and we know there's a lot of great work going on in local levels with food banks, food pantries, different types of programs. Uh, but that need just continues to grow. You mentioned some of the government programs. How have they helped? How, how have you been able to work with the government on some of this? Yeah, so we we are um, uh, the largest recipient of, of government commodities. So the TFAP um, and most recently trade mitigation allocations for the federal government have been kind of our base coming in for food. We have other streams. We do retail recovery and recover food from, from manufacturers as well as um, uh, we recover uh, lots of fresh produce and other ag products uh, from the ag industry. But the government food's pretty important. Most recently, the um, uh, the, the CFAP, it's the, the uh, coronavirus uh, food assistance program, has been engaged engaged in June. It'll, it'll, we think it will continue through probably November, we think, maybe October, uh, where the government's gone out and contracted vendors to produce uh, boxes of food. There are 20, 25-pound boxes of food, variety of produce, dairy, and protein, and those are being supplied by those vendors Blake, how has that gone? Because we've heard some questions raised, we've heard some criticisms on that. How do, you, in your view, how has it gone? Our our food banks are appreciative of that food and 
the form that it's coming in because it makes it easy to distribute. So, you know, we're, we're happy with that program at this point. All right. Now, um, we, we just had this week National Hot Dog Day, and I understand that the members of the North American Meat Institute worked with your organization, worked with Feeding America, to get more than 325,000 hot dogs to food banks across the country. Tell us about that. That's right, um, and they will be very well received uh, by those people in need. Uh, we are greatly appreciative to the Meat Institute and its generous members and partners as they support the local food banks and the people who face hunger, and that that, that will be, a, be, be hugely received by uh, all in charitable food systems. So thank you so much, Meat Institute and members. So I always stress this, uh, no donation or effort is too small because everything is needed and, and, and appreciated and can help. Um, is there is there a certain, if someone wants to make a donation other than money, if they wanted to give product, can they do that? Or, you know, go to the grocery store, get something and, and give to the food banks. Is there something you recommend that's better or not to, as far as what uh, what items, what things to get? So I, I would I would encourage everyone to go to our feedingamerica.org site and it can get you connected. It can get them connected with a local food bank or feeding agency, and they they would be best suited mm-hmm. to respond to those questions locally because the need may be different depending on the food bank and the agency. But you know, money, food, volunteer time, uh, particularly shelf stable food because it's it's in tight supply right now with the imbalance of the retail uh, food supply chain at this point. So that would be my my best advice to your listeners. Well, it's just, uh, I mean, there's such a challenge ahead of us here. And as you said, we already had a challenge going into the pandemic. Uh, It's it's even greater now. And the work that Feeding America does uh, all across the country, uh, you just have a tremendous network, uh, Blake, that uh, serves so many people. Are you are you growing? Are you expanding that network? Yes, um, you know we're we're trying to grow the network. Uh, we're trying to you know expand our capacity right now. I, I would tell you that our food banks, on average, are distributing about forty percent more food since the, the pandemic um, uh, versus the same time last year. So we've had an, a tremendous increase in distribution. Uh, capacity as well, and it's through a lot of the innovation. So we're continuing to do our best to grow our ability to, to feed, you know, to, to fuel the need uh, for yeah. food insecurity in the U.S. We encourage people to help any way that that they can. And uh, Blake, thank you for being with us and uh, giving us an overview of the situation. Appreciate it, and uh, we'll stay in touch with you on this. Thank you very much. All right, Mike, my pleasure. Thank you, Blake Thompson, Chief Supply Chain Officer for Feeding. America. Up next, we'll talk with the North American Meat Institute about uh, what we know so far from the USDA investigation into uh, the cattle markets. That's next on AOA. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. So yesterday, USDA 
made a number of recommendations to Congress to address price volatility in cattle markets, but they did not answer a lot of the questions that people are wanting answers to around alleged price manipulation by beef processors. So a lot that we're still waiting to, to hear about this. But let's, uh, let's talk about what we have heard so far. Joining us now is Mark Dopp. He is Senior Vice President, Regulatory Affairs and also uh, Scientific Affairs Global Counsel for the North American Meat Institute. Mark, thank you for joining us. First of all, let's, uh, let's get your reaction to what the USDA did come out with, these recommendations. So what do you think about those? Well, let's start with, um, I, think, I think the department did a really good job of, of uh, summarizing what happened with respect to the Holcomb fire and then summarizing the facts. Uh, that are involved in the pandemic that we're still in the middle of, unfortunately. Uh, and I thought that the uh, I thought that the analysis that the department engaged in, in terms of analyzing those facts from an economic standpoint, also was uh, was was quite good. Uh, I also think that that the the analysis or the conclusions that the department drew with respect to what's been happening are pretty consistent with what uh, with what we've been saying all along. That is that we had. Uh, you know, the Holcomb fire was unfortunate to say the least. And what we've been going through for the past several months in the country and throughout the world is is even more unfortunate. But those types of these these black swan events, if you want to call them that, um, are going to result in the very types of market disruptions, supply chain disruptions that we've been seeing. So I guess none of it's that surprising. It's unfortunate, but not terribly surprising. The report suggests that uh, the Ag Department could internally pursue uh, improved risk management tools for producers and expand lending to small meat processors through USDA's rural development programs. What do you think of that? I think anything that the department can do that that helps producers uh, better manage risk. Now, I'm not in the producer community. I'm, I'm, a, I'm the grandson of a hog, grandson of a hog farmer, but uh, have been in the production for a long time. Uh, but anything the department can do to, uh, uh, you know, help producers better manage risk, we're all in favor of that. And, I mean, you know, one of the things that people need to remember is that the packing community needs producers just like the producers need the packers. Uh, and I think you mentioned also um, some there's an, there's some discussion in there about possibly finding ways to to uh, afford smaller, smaller, very small packing facilities or processing facilities, ways to expand their markets. I think that that's something that uh, should be explored, Um, although I will say this, I don't think, um, I've seen some of the bills that are floating around up on Capitol Hill. Uh, I think we need to remember that any bill that wants to find a way to expand markets for small and very small packers shouldn't be done or shouldn't be undertaken at the expense of food safety. So, you know, that's, that's priority one and one A from my perspective. So basically, the the report said, we have not found any unfair practices, but if we do, we'll take action on them. You think that is going to satisfy people? I mean, I, I know there's a lot of people that kind of had their minds already made up about this, and if, if, if the answer isn't what they'd already predetermined, they're not going to be happy about it. But overall, do you think that is a fair assessment uh, coming out of this investigation? Well, I mean, the Secretary of Agriculture has a job to enforce the Packers and Stockyards Act every day, and and I'm I'm of the view that they're not that. And he said that they're going to continue to look at certain issues. Uh, I'm of the view that, that they're not going to find any wrongdoing. We believe uh, 
you know, pretty strongly that the nothing is on nothing untoward happened. Uh, again, the, the supply chain disruptions caused by the pandemic are very unfortunate, but that doesn't mean that there was anything untoward or illegal that took place. Uh, and in terms of whether that satisfies, uh, you know, some people in the countryside, uh, you know, I don't know how to respond to that. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically, though, this kind of leaves it open. I mean, it, this isn't an end because they say that they're going to keep looking and and if there's action that needs to be taken, they'll take it. So uh, this is kind of a this. If people thought this was going to be the the end of this, it's not. Obviously, it's going to go on. Uh, well, that's what the secretary indicated in his statement and uh, in the mm-hmm. report that they're not they're not done. However, as I said, I'm I'm confident that they won't that there will not be a finding of any wrongdoing on the part of on the part of the packing community. So. You, all right, so that's interesting. You don't think that then you you believe there's nothing there to find as far as any uh, uh, wrongdoing or illegal activities by the the Packers in? Correct. I mean, I think I think again, if you go back and look at the facts that were laid out, and if you look at the economic analysis, everything that occurred makes perfect sense. I mean, the economists that have looked at this, this issue, Dr. Tonser, Dr. Coons, uh, Dave J. Dave J. looked. Today, excuse me, who looked at it? Uh, every, even even the USDA analysis seems to suggest that, that again, it's very unfortunate. Um, and I think people need to remember that not only were the producers adversely affected, but also were the packers. Um, it's you know it's just an unfortunate set of circumstances, and, and one that hopefully we will manage to work our way out of relatively soon. All right, Mark. Thank you very much for the reaction, and we'll keep a close watch on this as uh, the investigation continues. Thank you very much. Happy to do it. Be well. Uh, all right. Take care. That's Mark Dopp, Senior Vice President, Regulatory Affairs and Scientific Affairs, Global Council for the North American Meat Institute. So not all the answers that uh, some people were looking for in this investigation. Again, it's not a closed investigation. As the USDA says, they'll continue to look into the uh, cattle markets. And if they find anything, they've not found anything they feel wrong at this point, although they've made some recommendations that they feel would make things better. But they say if they find anything wrong in the future, then they will take action at that time. We're going to get more reaction to this tomorrow from the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. And they're going to be, like I said, strong feelings on this on both sides because I know a lot of people were looking for more definitive answers coming out of this investigation than we have received so far. So we'll continue to get reaction in the days ahead. Well, that's going to wrap it up for today. Thank you very much for joining us. Have a great and safe day, everyone. And be sure to tune in again tomorrow to AOA, Adams on Agriculture.